Tiffany Burkett was spending her spare time the way many people do nowadays, parked in front of a big screen, thumping away at plastic, hollow-sounding buttons, living for the thrill of illuminating patterns of pixels on a screen that creates an imaginary world. All powered by software developed by psychologists designed to keep you glued to that screen, and it really works. But something went wrong in the model here for Tiffany, because the more she played the game the more she started to get a sense that she wanted to have an adventure, kind of like she was playing in the game, but in the real world, to get out there in the real world, see it, touch it, smell it, have a real experience. And then one day, as she was driving her car to work, that feeling that had been sort of growing as she'd been playing the games was melded with something else that caught her attention. Just a glimpse. It was a passing flash, gone before this time to fully take it in. But that's all it took, because that serendipitous glimpse from her car window, combined with that growing desire to get out and explore new places, well, that changed everything in Tiffany's life. I'm Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. We got a good one for you. I'm Sam Manicom. Ted Simon. Austin Vince. Simon Payton. Bill Bragoo. Helga Pedersen. Jocelyn Snow. Charlie Borman. Simon Thomas. Lisa Thomas. Grant Johnson. Elspeth I'm Marissa Notier, and you're listening to Adventure Writer Radio. It's wind pressure that powers the Moto Breeze chain oiler. No electrical or vacuum connections. It delivers the oil to a felt pad on your swing arm. No nozzles near your sprockets. One ounce of oil gets 1,000 miles or 1,600 kilometers. Get more miles from your chain and sprockets. MotoBreeze.com. And Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made heavy-duty luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. You can turn any dry bag into luggage using their strapping system. And, of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse that adventure riding gives it. Tough, reliable gear. GreenChiliADV.com. Best Rest Product is the maker of the Cycle Pump, the best tire inflator for motorcyclists. It'll inflate your flat tire in less than three minutes. Made in the USA. Comes with a lifetime warranty. They also distribute Google Tech filters. CyclePump.com. Okay. I used to be a super hardcore, like, video game nerd. I was really into that stuff, and that's all I really did with my life. And then it was just like, that just opened the whole world to me all of a sudden. My name is Tiffany Burkett. I'm currently an author, previously a software developer, and I'm from Los Angeles. What got me into it was I was literally just driving to work one day and I saw people riding a motorcycle and I just was like, oh, I should try that. And I got a tax return in my pocket, went and bought a bike and just on a total whim, I signed up for their the safety class and just got into it. And it I thought I was just going to save some money on gas and it would be kind of a fun way to go to work. And then it turned into an all-consuming obsession of racetracks and travel and... <laughs> A whole lot of other things. <laughs> That's pretty incredible. If you think about it, if you go back, if that had not happened that day, you had not went to work, you were yeah. sick, you, the motorcycle didn't come by, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like it makes you wonder right. if, if the world had, would have turned out for you like it is today. 
Yeah, it was just like this totally random whim. And I was just like, well, maybe that would be fun. And then, yeah, just I don't even know what my life would be right now. I used to be a super hardcore like video game nerd. And I was really into that stuff. And that's all I really did with my life. And then it was just like that just opened the whole world to me all of a sudden. Like I went from someone who just dreamed about doing things to someone who was like, oh, wait, I can do that. (laughs) And it was just It was a great transformation that was totally on accident. (laughs) You grew up in LA. Yes. What was that like? Um, it wasn't, I'm not going to say it was amazing per se. (laughs) It was, I grew up with, uh, I had a single mom. Um, she had five kids, so I had a lot of siblings and we were not very well off at all. So we lived in kind of a ghetto neighborhood and it was just like kind of, dog eat dog and you just learn to survive and that's what we did and then like when I started I finally started working and as an adult I got into software development working in video games and uh, started making enough money that I could actually experience things in my life because we never traveled when I was a kid we never really went anywhere we just couldn't afford it so as soon as I could actually afford things and I got a bike and then I started going to other states and then it was other countries and then it was racetracks and all of that. It was the whole world became a completely different place to me. So like LA was a great place to grow up in the sense that there's a lot of ambition that you're surrounded by. So you feel like anything is possible because you're watching people every day show you that you could literally do anything. But as far as a lot of other ways, it's not the most friendly place perhaps, (laughs) but (laughs) But uh, and it's definitely very dog eat dog, but it kind of also makes you really resourceful. So like there's a lot of ways that I'm actually really grateful I grew up in Los Angeles just because I had that drive kind of beat into me because it was the only way to survive. <laughs> That's interesting about the ambition. I mean, that makes a lot of sense. You're surrounded by by people you're seeing become super successful and people out there, right. the real go-getters, I guess, that are, that are going yeah. to LA because LA is the place to go, right? Particularly, I guess, if you're into what movies, I guess. Right. Yeah. Like there's so many people I met there that were just like, they'd come from the Midwest or wherever. And they just saw it as this city of dreams of like, I'm going to be, I could become a movie star. I could become a CEO. I could start a tech company. Like there's, and then all of a sudden, even in, when I started getting into motorcycles, it's like, I'd go to the racetrack. It's like, oh yeah, that guy, he's also a pilot. That guy runs a circus. That guy, like (laughs) there were people who did everything you could imagine. And because of that, it kind of opened my mind to this idea that like, I guess, I could technically do anything too. <laughs> well, growing up there and you're saying dog eat dog, what do you mean? What, what sort of things do you deal with as a kid? Um, it's just, it's kind of a little bit ruthless as far as you do have that extreme wealth gap. So you have like coming from someone who doesn't really have anything. There's always kind of the judgment of like, I couldn't afford to go to college. So there was all of this like, Oh, mm. hated this, 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 but I'm like, well, I went into working straight away. So I ended up learning like kind of in the real world in that sense. But at the same time, there's like always a little bit of that, um, just people fighting to, even when you get into the working world, like someone fighting you for a promotion or getting passed up or just trying so hard to beat other people instead of just work together with them. And you kind of have to get yourself out of that mentality of not everyone's not my enemy or <laughs> actually we can work together and build something. But there's definitely a lot of competitiveness that you get they're trying to get ahead. 
Which can be good. Uh, I mean, you know, in a lot yeah. of things, because, you know, sometimes in life, that's what you have to do. It's a squeaky right. wheel gets the grease, right? I mean, that old saying. Absolutely. Yeah, there's definitely some good things about it. And then there's some things where it's like, oh, that's going to become my toxic trait if I don't slow down. <laughs> what did your parents do for a living? Um, so my mom actually worked for LAPD. She was, she worked in the evidence room. So actually I had probably a particularly sheltered childhood because since she worked for the police department, she saw every bad thing that happened in the city that didn't make the news, even the small ones. So mm. we were pretty, she didn't really let us go outside too much. And then my dad, he was out of the picture by the time I was about 10, but he was a construction worker. And then he kind of went down a bad path of drugs and bad things. So it was just my mom supporting us on her LAPD salary for most of my life. But again, like that was interesting too, because I grew up kind of around cops a lot and I don't know, they have interesting stories <laughs> and some interesting, uh, like safety suggestions and stuff like that. And incredible, even gory stories that they yeah. tell. They tend to get <laughs> yeah. desensitized a, a, a bit yeah, to definitely. that. So with your mom working for LAPD, that would sound to me like a well-paid job, decent paid job. But I bet in LA, it's, it is so expensive. Yeah, that's what's hard. Is like, I mean, back then it was like a $45,000 a year job, which back in the 90s was Decent, but raising five kids in Los Angeles, it still was like she'd take on second jobs every now and again to help afford snacks and stuff like that. And as a kid, I didn't really understand any of this. Like I had no concept of what rich and poor is. But then like now as an adult, I look back and I'm like, good job, mom. <laughs> <laughs> that tough job to do for sure. Yeah. And, and to be able to do it all those years, five kids, a lot of mouths right. to feed and, and, and all these, but I mean, you know what it's like as an adult just for one person. Oh yeah. It, it's tough to survive. <laughs> I don't, I don't have any children and that's part of why I can travel on a bike, but I can't even imagine how hard some of that stuff yeah. was. How do you get into software? You, you said you didn't go to school. How do you get into a software job? Well, so I was super gamer nerd and like all I did was video games were like, I said, since she worked for LAPD and we were kind of sheltered, we weren't really allowed to go outside too much or very far. So I stayed inside and I played video games a lot and I was just so into it that by the time I was graduating high school and I was looking at colleges, I saw how much college cost. And it's like, when I saw $30,000 a year, I'm like, oh my God, like I can never ever afford that. So I'm like, I'll just go get a job and I'll save up money for however many years it takes. And then I'll go to college because it's just, I was taught my whole life that like, you don't take on debt if you don't have to, you just save and save and then buy things outright. So... When I got out of when I got out of high school, I saw an ad for a video game testing job, which is pretty bottom of the barrel as far as like entry level. Anyone can get into it. It's like um, they they pay like minimum wage, and you're going to work like seventy to eighty hours. But I got into it because I was really passionate about video games, and at the time, I was like, "This is my dream job. Oh my god, I'd do this for free." And uh, did did that for about four years, where I had like I had there were no benefits, literally minimum wage and just the longest hours. And then I ended up saving up enough money that I could afford to go to college, and um, I quit that job and then went full time into just a local community college. But then after. After doing one semester at the local community college, I started, like, I wanted to have a job again because I was getting bored and I applied for some other more complex, higher paying and better software jobs. 
And because I had over four years of experience actually in the industry, I got hired right away and it was actually really easy to move up that way. And I'm like, wait, if I already have all this experience, why am I going to go to college and get in debt over a hundred thousand dollars when they're already willing to just pay me to do this job that I already know how to do because I've done it for years. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and so then I actually ended up with a huge nest egg, which is part of what happened when like, I don't know, almost 10 years into my career, I ended up getting laid off at a, I was working for this company. It was realtor.com and they got bought out, moved their whole office to Northern California. And that was like my make or break it move moment where I could either move to Northern California or I could quit everything and take some time off and finally go on a trip because like working in software, you don't get a lot of time off at all. I mean, in the U S we get two weeks a year at best and mm-hmm. God forbid you take it all at once. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, uh, so that was my moment where I'm like, okay, I'm getting laid off. I'm going to get a severance package. I've got this nest egg. I'm like, why don't I just do the trip that I've always wanted to do? And I was just going to do this cross country trip from LA to the Florida keys and back to Los Angeles. And, uh, So I quit that, took off on that job or quit that job and then took off on that trip. And then I realized by the time I had gotten back, I had had so much fun and I still had plenty of money in the bank. So I'm like, yeah, maybe I'll just go do the lower 48 and maybe I'll do Alaska fits in the cards and just keep going a little longer. Like there's lots of software jobs. I can get another one when I get back. And, uh, so it all kind of worked out in a really good way that like it, that, that I'm going to save this money for college whole concept turned into, I'm going to save this money for like an education of travel. <laughs> yeah. You, you must be a very disciplined person, at least financially. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's the one thing I did learn very much. Well, working we were, a minimum wage job and saving enough money to go to college. And it sounds like you, you saved a it, fair <laughs> bit there. That's it, pretty incredible. There was a lot of top ramen and a lot of coupons and a lot of like, oh, I can get a pound of chicken for 99 cents. I think I can split that into three meals. <laughs> Would you have been a better person if you had a lot more money to spend on food at this point? Oh, yeah. See, I I think that was actually a huge advantage that I had was I was so pounded into me that I couldn't spend money on anything that like, even when I started traveling, that became easier of like, I could sacrifice having great food for like, all right, I can survive on top ramen for a few months if I need to. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I actually kind of became like my <laughs> budgeting superpower on the road. It, it gives you freedom to do the things that you really want, doesn't it? I mean, right. you know, you can make yourself all cushy and comfortable, but yeah. if you're disciplined, but it takes a lot that not everybody's yeah. disciplined. It has to be no. that, that upbringing. <laughs> and especially like you got into that software thing with the initial job, because you said you were passionate, you would have done it for nothing. And then I think that's right. what those, these companies take advantage of. And then they oh, stick yeah, they you do. at minimum wage and, right. <laughs> and, and you work like that. I mean, that's just amazing. But having said all that, that sort of got you to the next step. Like you said, all of a sudden surprise four years in and, and away you go, you're yeah. up into a higher level. Yeah. It worked great. Cause that's just, that is funny though. They do this labor of love thing. Cause I was working on, I worked on guitar hero for a while and I worked on call of duty back when black ops two was coming out. And it was like, this, this like, oh, it's such a labor of love. And they're sitting there saying, yeah, we broke record sales. We made like $20 billion. And they're like, here's your $10 an hour job. Yeah, <laughs> wait, right. I'm like, wait a minute. <laughs> something, is, something is askew here for yeah. sure. It's <laughs> well, a funny industry. I would not, re- put, I would not wish it on anyone in the world, but it got me where I am. So I'm still grateful for it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> where, where you mentioned that you all of a sudden decide to go traveling. 
back up. Where does that, where does that, where does that desire to travel come from? I mean, what, what got uh-huh. you to that point where you're, you're chomping at the bit when they give you the boot, you say, I'm going to take advantage and go for a ride. So I think this actually still kind of falls back into like being a video game nerd. Like I grew up playing all these games. I was kind of, as I, I was pretty sheltered. I was kind of inside the house most of the time. And then I would play these games where they're going on these grandiose adventures. They're seeing the world and saving it from whatever crazy threat. And I'm just like, I wish I could just, you know, go do that. I could travel to all of these random little towns and meet random people and get random quests. And it was kind of that, that thing that I've always wanted to live out in real life. And then when I got a motorcycle, I started, I actually got into racing way before I did traveling. So I was obsessed with the racetrack, but it was kind of an excuse to be like, okay, I'm going to go on this road trip all the time. Cause I loved road trips. So it'd be like, I'm going to take this four hour road trip to the racetrack, ride all day. Cause I loved riding and then come back. And that started kind of inching me further and further from home. It went from, okay, I can go to this racetrack 80 miles away. And then suddenly it was one that was 200 miles away. Then suddenly 500 then suddenly a thousand. And it just kind of kept inching up. And then when I lost that job, I realized there was no way I could continue to afford racing. That is like so expensive that it was like, okay, this is off the table now. But then I was like, but why don't I finally try traveling? Cause I'd been racing for like seven years and I'm like, this is kind of it. I love it, but I kind of want to try something else for a little while. So it was just that slow kind of progression of wishing I could travel to starting to realize I was capable to starting to realize that Technically, the only thing that was holding me back was myself. Because I'd see these people on these huge adventures, like all these round the world travelers. And I'm like, wow, that's so cool. I wish I could do that. But I'm not as good as they are for whatever reason in my mind told me I wasn't as good as they were. Really no real reason, but. They had I something just, special, supposedly, you know, that's right. what you look at is, is take some special quality. It's really interesting, Tiffany. That's the first time I've heard someone say that they, from playing a video game. Cause that's always my, my thought process is if you just play video games, your whole life's going to be sitting inside and whatnot. Oh, Did yeah. You played video games to motivate you to go outside. That That's amazing. That, that's, yeah. that's, you know, that's incredible. <laughs> but that, that day that you got the boot at, I think you said it was realtor.com. Yep. Can you talk about that? Can you tell that, that story of that day? Sure. So that was, well, that was actually quite a day. I had actually, I had gotten back the week prior. I had done my first ever international trip that was like a, I finally used my time off for the first time ever. And I took a week off, flew to Japan and just went there to, I wanted to climb Mount Fuji because again, video games, a lot of my life was very, <laughs> was very motivated by video games. I'm sorry. I was a super nerd. And um, I got back from that and then literally they called everyone into a meeting and they're just like, okay, so we're closing this office officially. We had been bought out like a, maybe six months before, but then they, they had, basically fired our entire upper management and we're slowly taking over the company, trying to change it to their new, new style or whatever. And they called us all in. They told us that they were closing the office. And if we wanted, we could move to San Jose in Northern California and take a job there, which even being from Los Angeles, like it's expensive there, but San Jose, I'd be lucky to afford like a cardboard box. It's so expensive in Northern California. Um, so when I walked into my boss's office, they were like, okay, you have two options. Of course, you could take the severance package, which this is what you'd get. And, or they 
or I could move to Northern California. And at the time, after I had just gotten back from a big trip, I had just bought my FZ07, hoping to start like doing camping trips off of it. And I'm like, oh no, this is like the perfect storm. Like this is the way that the world's telling me this is finally the time to just do it. And so I was just like, give me severance. And, <laughs> and I was like, you don't have to worry about me quitting before the end date, before the office closes, because I'm just going to save up as much money as I can before it, I all get let go. And it worked out really well because I didn't leave early for them and I got paid till the end. And then I had about, they gave me like four or five months to plan the whole thing. So it worked out really great, actually. Wow. Yeah. And you, you were racing at this point, were you? Yeah. I, yeah, I was still racing at that point. You got into racing, you, you go to the track and do like track days, that sort of thing, or are you actually racing? Well, yeah. So I, I started out on track days. I did that for about two years and like I did one and it was just like, instant obsession. Like I had so much fun. It was, I signed up for one and then two weeks later I was there for another. And then all of a sudden that year in like eight months, I had done like 16 track days or something. Mm -hmm. And then within about two years of that, I wanted the next level. So I went and got my race license at the local series because they had a, I was on a Ninja 250 still. I just took my street bike and converted it over to being a track bike. And they had a whole Ninja 250 series, which was super fun because they're slow bikes. They can't really do anything. So it's all about the rider and you're just bumping elbows with people going half the speed of the big bikes. So it was a lot of fun and got into that. Then I got, did a year in as, as an amateur and then I got my expert license and never got anywhere near the front again, but I had a lot of fun. <laughs> Met a lot of great people of, that were just so interesting and just, it's such a community at the racetrack that now I can go almost to any racetrack in the country and it's such a small world that it'll be like, oh, you race AFM. Oh, you race CVMA. And I'm like, yeah, it's such a small world. That first day though, you said it was so addictive. You, you said it was, it was totally it addictive. What was. was it about the first day? Cause you know, to, to an outsider, you could look at it and say a racetrack would be scary to get on there and you're, yeah. you don't have the skills and you're going to look stupid. And what was it that really got uh -huh. you? Right. Like, so that's how I felt too. Actually, I had, what finally got me to even go to the racetrack was I was one of those Canyon heroes every weekend up in the canyons trying to go as fast as I could. And I went on this group ride and I didn't know the road at all. I was still very much an amateur despite the aspirations I had in my head. And I ended up almost going over the edge. Like I crashed, low sided in a turn and my bike was like maybe six inches from going off a cliff. And I just sat there like, okay, this isn't safe. Maybe I need to try a racetrack. And then I ended up going to this bike night type thing. And one of the local track day organizations was there and they're like, you should come to the track. And I'm like, well, I've only been riding like six months or so. I don't know if I'm good enough. And they're like, if you can shift, you can go to a racetrack. Hmm. And I'm like, if, it, if it's really that easy, I'll give it a try. <laughs> and I ended up signing up. I only had a, I had this little Toyota Celica, this little sporty car. And I, that was all I had to get to the track. So I ended up getting a hitch welded to it and got this tiny little single rail trailer that they called a trailer in a bag. It was ridiculous. And I towed out there with my little sport car. But as soon as I got on the track, like I was definitely very, very intimidated coming in, but then it was like such a controlled environment compared to the canyons where it's like, you have an ambulance on standby. Everyone's going the same direction. They're predictable. They're mostly good riders. And like, all, I just started to feel so safe and I had the repetition of the same thing over and over again that all of these canyons that I love so much like suddenly just seemed scary and psychotic compared to just this perfect pavement and this 
perfect predictable lap where I could just, it was just me and the bike and becoming better at it. And like, I could just sit and think about, Oh, I'll brake a little later or accelerate harder or faster. And it just felt so accessible and safe to do that. That, And then of course the adrenaline is next level because you're going faster than you've ever gone, but you're doing so in a way that's not terrifying. Cause I can have like pretty bad anxiety on a motorcycle sometimes. Like I get super nervous about everything. <laughs> and so like having that kind of safety margin made it where like, this is okay. I can experiment here and it's okay. And, uh, it was just, that was like everything I needed because I'm a very logical learner too. So having that just like, okay, if I do this, then that happens. If I do this then that happens, okay. And I can keep experimenting with it. And that, that was kind of what I got addicted to. When you decided to head off on that, that trip and you, you lost your job and, and you've left, you had one thing to do. You want to do something before you left. What was that? So yeah, the one thing I did want to do, I didn't want to just up and leave. I had one, like I said, it's a huge community. So I wanted to like tell my friends, hey, I'm going to go do this. So you're not going to see me at the next round. And here's why, which is actually great. Cause they even, um, they even, when I was on the trip, I got like, they did a whole bunch of photos. A photographer went through and had everyone send me like a well-wishing photo when I was oh, traveling. Nice. <laughs> but um, yeah, so I went to this racetrack this one last time, but because- because I was about to go on this trip, like I was kind of really lackadaisical about it. Like I didn't even pack all my tools. I only entered like one race because I didn't want to spend a bunch of money. And I was just like, I'll just kind of show up, have fun, do whatever. But um, because because I had done that trip to Japan over the summer, I didn't race all summer like I normally do. So my wonderfully carbureted Ninja 250 had sat for months and it turns out carburetors don't like that that much. And um, (laughs) I show up at the track and I try and start my bike and it just, it, it it's just like, it was sputtering and awkward. It's like, it just got clogged up with something while I was gone. So I'm sitting there with this one race. I didn't even bring tools. So I'm like going to everyone I can, like, I need to borrow tools to pull my carburetor and da da da. And then, um, my now writing partner came up to me. He had written, so he had ridden down for, or driven down from Colorado to race. Cause during the winter people in Colorado, they can't race cause they have winter and in Southern California, we do not. <laughs> so he had come down for a winter round and he came over, saw me struggling. and was like, Oh, you need some help with that. And, uh, I was actually very stubborn and was like, no, I've got this. I know what I'm doing. <laughs> but, <laughs> but then after, after flailing with this carburetor forever and getting so annoyed by it, cause it takes the smallest fleck of dust to make those carburetors not run. Right. I swear to God. Um, he was just like, I can't stand watching this anymore. Like I'm taking over. And he came over and fixed my carburetor. And I, he went from being someone who I barely knew to someone who was suddenly a really good friend after that weekend, which was funny because then after that race weekend, I went back maybe a month later, all ready to go, got on my bike. And it was right before the um, MotoGP race in Austin that year. So I really wanted to hit the MotoGP race in Austin just because I'm super into that scene. And, uh, I was riding through there and it turned out, so the local, the national series Moto America had just started at the time and they were doing like a joint race with, uh, the circuit at the circuit of the Americas. They were doing a joint MotoGP and Moto America race and Hollywood my partner's buddy had come down to race and Hollywood was being the crew chief. So like I ran into him again at that racetrack 
first on the way out to Florida, there was like a tire test and I stopped in just to check it out. And then when I had made it to Florida, was on my way back and it was the actual MotoGP race. He was there again and I ended up staying up all night helping him work on his friend's race bike so that they could make the race on on Sunday. <laughs> and it was like all of a sudden I just kept running into him a bunch because of that, which was which ended up being really fun. And then I got back from that whole whole cross country trip and started and then I I said I was so addicted to travel at that point. It was so much fun for that month that I'm like, okay, I'm gonna go do the whole lower forty eight. So what, and, you, what you're talking uh, about is you, you did, you did a cross country trip then you, so you started your first yeah. trip is a cross country trip. You complete yeah. that and you come back and it does nothing but fuel your desire for more. Right. Cause this is on FZ07. Yeah. So I was on, yeah, the FZ07 or FZ07 yeah, <laughs> and, um, or MT07, depending on right. where you are. <laughs> but, um, so I had bought that bike specifically cause it was like a naked sport bike and it was so nimble and I, that's just sport bikes are just what I do. Like they're, they're just in my DNA at this point. Um, I tried a couple adventure bikes, just did a test ride. And it's just, I don't know, something about it just didn't give me like that giggle factor that the FZ did. So I ended up taking that FZ. I had to actually import cases from Germany because it was 2015 and they had just come out in the US. Um, so I got some cases. I got a uh a really tall touring windscreen. I got a bunch of crash protection because I am very clumsy and very prone to falling over. <laughs> and, um, so I got like hand guards and stuff and I ended up having to retrofit a couple th- like custom drilling and stuff to get everything to fit. But I turned that FZ into as good of an adventure bike as it could be. And, um, being a racer, I was used who actually loved and I love endurance racing. So like to me doing, three, four or 500 miles on that bike was not a big deal. More than that is a bit much. I know a lot of people on adventure bikes can do like 800 mile days. And I'm just like, that's all you, bud. <laughs> I've got a lot of wind buffering over here. <laughs> By 500 miles, I'm about ready to collapse. <laughs> but, um, but it was so much fun that when I ever, I hopped on that bike in a twisty road or whatever, it was just, it was just exquisite. <laughs> like I, it was so fun. And are you camping on that initial trip? Were you, is that what you were doing yeah. for travel? Yeah. So that was, oh man, that was so nerve wracking. Um, I always liked camping. Like I said, we grew up pretty poor. So if we did have a vacation, it was like, we'd go drive 200 miles to the middle of the woods and go camping at like a free camp spot or something. And that's what we could afford to do. But so as a kid, that was like ingrained as me as vacation means camping. That's what, like, this is what fun is, but I had never done it alone totally. So I was actually super terrified when I first set up my tent, I went up to death Valley and I was in like a paid campground. It was perfectly nice, but I was just like terrified. Like every time I'd hear like gravel crunch or my, the wind, like rustle my tent, I would just be like, Oh my God, is someone out there? (laughs) (laughs) That was the thing too, is like, so when I was leaving, I, I was ready to go and trying to like psych myself up because I was admittedly a bit terrified because I had no idea what to expect. And all my friends would like, they'd like send me articles of like, Hey, this guy got killed in his tent and shit. And I'm like, (laughs) and I'm just like, why would you send me that? Yeah, it (laughs) has to be put in perspective. How many people actually went camping that year for those people that ran into a problem? But they would find this one single article about, oh, this guy got robbed, this guy got attacked. And I'm just like, that's not really helping. So I was 
terrified, but I insisted. I'm like, I want to camp. This is like supposed to be kind of the dream of you go out on your motorcycle in the open road and you pull over and camp whenever you need to sleep. And like this, this idea of freedom on a bike, that's what it looked like to me. (laughs) So did you get over it? Was that, was that first one enough to get you over the fear of camping alone? Yeah. So The first one was a little scary just in my mind, but it wasn't bad. And then the second one, I made it to Zion National Park and that campground was totally full because it's so popular. And I had to go find some like dispersed free camping just out in the wilderness outside of Zion. And uh, I set up my tent and I'm trying to like be calm. And then this guy in the middle of the night drives up in a windowless van and parks and he looks like every stereotype of a scary person. I'm just like, what have I done? What have I done? What have I done? (laughs) And then, um, so that scared me a bunch, but then day three, I had a great camping experience. I actually made it, I got a spot in the park and it was like nice and safe. And I was meeting other campers and they were friendly and everything was great. And then after that, that started to be my consistent experience. Like once I got past my own like insecurities, every time I would stop and camp it, I was like adopted into, um, Ever, like I felt like I was being adopted by every older couple or anyone who just saw a solo female and was like, let's protect that person. Right, yeah. And uh, so it ended up being a great experience. And I had no fear of camping by like day four or five up until I like camped with bears, but that's a whole nother, story. <laughs> <laughs> which was fine too. But in my mind, I was like, oh God, there's bears. <laughs> but, but I was totally fine camping the whole way. So I ended up camping all the way to Florida and then camped all the way back and Totally successful. Had no issues. Um, yeah. Then you get back and you decide that you haven't had enough. You're not ready to go back to work. I mean, you must have, what is it? Like you look at the bank account and think, I haven't spent enough. I, I mean, I, I, still have, I still have some more there. So I do more fun. I mean, yeah, it was a little bit of both. Like I came back and it was just like, when it was my first time ever, like really tasting that freedom of like, I can just go like, this is fine. I'm seeing all these amazing things. I'm camping in these amazing places. Like I'm waking up, I can hop on my bike. Like I live off my motorcycle. This is incredible. Like everything I could ever have dreamed of. So I was just so addicted to that feeling. I remember laying on the floor of my apartment and just like staring at the ceiling and like, why should I go back to work yet when I've still got like, I had like $25,000 in the bank at the time. And I'm like, that's plenty of money to go for another, I don't know, however many months. Cause I live pretty cheaply, especially with cheap camping and cheap food. I was like, there's no reason I need to stop now. I have, I've never seen Alaska. I've never seen Maine. Like, why don't I go see the whole lower 48? So it was just, it was a combination of that. I have enough money and and also I had been working straight for 10 years, long hours and no vacations. I'm just like, I, I can kind of take a break. Software development's not going anywhere. It'll be there when I get back. And, uh, and I just still had that kind of wanderlust had just started and just started getting that taste of it that I just had to have more. You're probably spending as much on your apartment that you're paying for that you're not even there for than, you, than when you're traveling. <laughs> yeah. So that, yeah, that's the funny thing is whenever I do these travels, whether it's Mexico or Asia or wherever, it's like I actually spend way more money living stagnant in the United States than I do when I'm actively on the road traveling every day, just yeah. between rent and food and trying to stay entertained from the mundanity of it all. Like, I don't know how much I spend a month necessarily, but it's definitely more than like the 
maybe thousand fifteen hundred a month that I spend when I'm actively on the road. <laughs> so, so when you were looking at to to extend the trip or, or go on another trip, you didn't break it down and say I've got this much. This will take me this many days. Whatever you just figure you'll go and, and sort of wing it. Yeah, that was basically my concept is however long it takes, it takes. My hope was to do it in maybe three to four months because it was May at the time. And honestly, growing up in Los Angeles, I really didn't have a concept of when winter started or when it ended in most of the world. So I was just kind of like, I should probably be back by somewhere around October, I think. <laughs> I had no idea. It was actually funny because then I, I said it was the middle of May. So in LA, it's like a hundred degrees already. Wow. It's plenty hot and I'm sweaty every day. So I start heading up north going towards Oregon because I'm like, all right, I'll hit out. I'll hit Oregon and Washington and Idaho and I'll see all these northern states. I was going to ride to Montana and go through Glacier National Park in my mind. Turns out Glacier National Park doesn't even open till like July. <laughs> it's like I get, I get up to Oregon and it was 30 degrees, half raining, half snowing. And I'm like, I don't understand what's going on. <laughs> 30 degrees is, is below zero fer- or, uh, Celsius. Or yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. For those who are <laughs> Celsius readers, yeah. That's, uh... <laughs> I'm just like sitting there freezing. I ended up at a little side of the road, like um, gas station type thing. And this person on Harley came up to me, watched me. I was literally doing push-ups and squats at the side of the road to try and get my blood flowing because I was freezing. And my FZ07 doesn't have any creature comforts, like heated grips or heated anything. Mm. So I'm just like tucking in behind my windscreen best I can, wearing every single layer that I brought and and like literally doing calisthenics at the side of the road to try and warm up. And then this lady just pulls out like these, those little disposable hand warmers, like those little crunchy sandbags. And she's like, put these in your gloves. I want you to keep your fingers. And I'm like, thank you. And and, um, it ended up being like a whole week of that, just absolute torture. And I ended up just rushing south as fast as I could because I was so cold and had no idea that winter would still be happening like end of May. How far did you get? (laughs) Um, at that time I got as high as Crater Lake in Oregon. So like Southern Oregon. And then I dipped over to Boise and then I made it to Salt Lake City in Utah. And it was 70 degrees in Salt Lake City and I had never been happier in my life. (laughs) 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 So, um, then I ended up heading to Moab and it was about 80 there, but I showed up on Moab on a holiday weekend, which I don't know if you've ever been to Moab, but it gets really, really, really crazy there Mm -hmm. during, it's crazy there all the time, but on a holiday weekend, it's like a, it's an, like an off-road amusement park almost. Just everyone who likes any kind of off-road vehicle just gathers. Four-wheeling, bicycles, hikers, everything. Right. Everything. It's so popular and it's super beautiful. Like Southern Utah and all of the rich red dirt is just breathtaking. But, um, so I was actually staying there on Memorial day. I had ended up in a parking lot at the side of the road camping because during that weekend, like even the cheapest worst chain hotel was like $250 a night. And that was just not happening. And then all the campgrounds were full and everything was full. So I ended up in a parking lot and just pitched my tent and it was windy and I couldn't stake it down. And I'm just like, what have I done? Why, (laughs) what is my life now? Yeah. That's one of those days that are not that fun on the road. No, (laughs) there are a few of those in there. Um, and then it actually ended up being a funny coincidence that, um, and this is actually where 
my partner came back into it. Uh, I got a phone call that night, just totally out of the blue. Like, Hey, where are you at? Like, cause he knew I was traveling. So he's like, what are you doing? And I'm like, well, I'm actually in Utah and not having a very good time right now. <laughs> and, and he's like, well, why don't you come up to Colorado? It'll be fun. Um, so I ended up rooting immediately to Colorado, hoping it would be nicer, which I did get snowed on and hailed on. So I don't know that it was nicer, <laughs> but, but I ended up meeting him in this place called Steamboat Springs, which is like a kind of a resort ski city, but there's some nice hot springs up there and after the whole Oregon snow situation and snow in Colorado, hot springs sounded very, very good. Um, and I met up with my partner up there just, or now partner who at the time was just a friend and just to hang out and whatever. And he was like, Oh, Hey, so glad you came. I just lost my job. So I've got lots of time if you want to hang out for a while. And I'm like, Oh, well that's, <laughs> that's kind of convenient timing. So I actually ended up jokingly asking him then if he wanted to come with me and, um, he then, and I, I asked that joke, said that joke to a lot of people. So I was like, oh, hey, want to come with me on this ridiculous, endless journey that I don't know how long it's going to go or where it's going to go. And people are like, oh, yeah, I'd totally love to, but I have this obligation or that obligation or whatever. And when I asked him, he's like, yeah, that sounds really good. And I'm like, what? <laughs> now, now is, are, are you guys romantically We're going to take just a short break while I tell you about a couple of things. But when we come back, Tiffany takes another turn in her adventure and the vacation becomes something else. Stay with us. When we're riding a motorcycle, we need to stay hydrated, energized, and alert. And just stopping for a few minutes on the side of the road is usually enough to handle those requirements. Have a snack, have something to drink, maybe do some push-ups, and then you're good for, you know, so many more miles going down the road. But when it comes to getting cold feet, that's not so easy to remedy. Because once they're cold, it's almost impossible to get your feet warm again, especially on the side of the road. The real trick here is to not let them get cold in the first place. And the best way I found to do this is by having great socks. The best sock I've ever tried for any outdoor activity. And before doing this podcast full time, I was doing wilderness trips. So I have plenty of experience with this, with staying warm and figuring out ways to, to do that. The best cold weather socks I've ever tried, ever out of all the socks I've tried, is Pearly's Possum Socks. These socks are made of a perfect blend of merino wool and possum fur. They're weaved together in a pattern that is designed just for us motorcyclists, particularly if you wear motorcycle boots. Man, these are these are dead on for them. The owners of Pearlies are also avid adventure motorcycle riders, so you know when you're dealing with them, you're dealing with one of us when you order your socks. The website is pearliespossumsocks.com. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. And by the way, we've made them the official sock of Adventure Rider Radio, not because of their ads, has nothing to do with that. It's just because I love these socks. I really do for all outdoors activities. Pearliespossumsocks.com. There's no doubt if you ride any sort of dirt at all, you're going to end up standing on your pegs at some time. Particularly with adventure bikes, we love to stand on our pegs because it gives us more control. But you won't have control unless your feet are really locked to those foot pegs, meaning that you need to replace those factory foot pegs because they're not made for the type of riding you do and replace them with a high quality set like IMS products. IMS products has a full line of adventure motorcycle foot pegs right on from these super wide ADV1 and ADV2 down on to the, the core enduro pegs. 
they have so many design features in there that make them great for what they are because IMS designed them specifically for adventure riding. They're made in the USA. They're warranted for life. You cannot go wrong with a product like this. And of course, the riders at IMS. IMSproducts.com is the website. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. IMSproducts.com. really good and i'm like what <laughs> now, now is, was, are you guys romantically involved at this point uh at this point no at this point he was just a friend who i kind of knew because he helped me fix my motorcycle and then i kept running into him right he's the guy back at the track that helped you with your carburetor that's the, this yeah. is the guy we're talking about now now when you ask him jokingly when he says yes does that scare you <laughs> on some level because <laughs> i he, didn't know him that well and I didn't and I'm like okay I know sometimes motorcycle people can be a little rougher than I'm prepared for so I don't even know what this means right now (laughs) and I'm just like he's got to be kidding he'll he's just he'll wake up like in a week or so and be like okay that was a fun to hang out for a week and now I'm gonna go about my way and then all of a sudden he sold his truck and then all of a sudden he bought uh fz1 um, to travel on. And then he had bags on it and a touring seat. And I'm just like, what's going on right now? And he's like, oh, we'll hang out for like, I don't know, I'll tour, show you around for a month or two. And then he moved into my tent. <laughs> no, this, this person we're talking about is David. David is yeah. here right now. David, welcome to Adventure Rider Radio. Yeah, thank you. So um, <laughs> I, I want to back up with you, David, before we go any further with, with Tiffany's story here. How, how do you get on, the, on a motorcycle? As a kid, I grew up on a ranch and had a neighbor kid that had a little dirt bike and, you know, my dad had a a motorcycle, so I was always interested in him. So by the time I think I was 11 or 12, I had done some work for a neighbor and he had this old Kawasaki RM125 in his barn and he's like, here you go, here's your payment. And I just brought it home and got it running the next morning and started, you know, chasing cows and riding off-road on that and just kind of snowballed into, you know, when I got out of high school, I got a sport bike. And then a few years out of college, I started racing. Yeah. Yeah. His parents didn't want him to have a bike as a kid, but he like brought one home with him. Mm. (laughs) It's like, I followed me home, mom. I think it's a pretty standard. That's like a boilerplate. (laughs) Parent does not want child to have motorcycle. And you can understand why. I mean, I mean right. especially with, well, I hate to say it, no, dis, no disrespect, man, but especially with males, young yes. males, you know, <laughs> and responsibility. I can't ever imagine why. Yeah. <laughs> Even knowing most adult males, yeah. I can understand why. Exactly. Let's not go there. David, <laughs> yeah, so no, so the, the racetrack, what, what was the attraction of the racetrack? Well, I had a, so originally after college, I'd bought a motorcycle and I was going to ride it down to Argentina. And that didn't quite work out. So I had this, actually it was an FZ1 as well. And one of my friends from high school just got out of the military and he was into the the track days and the racing scene. So it slowly progressed from, you know, riding in the canyons to going to the track. Mm. But the, the, the idea to ride to Argentina, where did that come from? I was just an idea that I had, um, you know, going through college. I'd been going to school, you know, my whole life and I was like, I'm going to take some time off and ride to Argentina and get a job at a ski mountain or something. That's, that's what I was planning on doing. How did you know about Argentina though? I mean, many people who, you know, if they're not into it, they have no idea it even exists. I I had some, I had some friends that 
liked that area and had been down there. And, uh, you know, obviously growing up in the mountains, you know, the, the appeal was there for the Patagonias. Oh, right, right, right. So, so for, for adventure stuff. Yeah. Right. And a, and a motorcycle trip that doesn't happen. You stayed on the track and then, and then what happens? You, Tiffany comes along and, and what do you see that as what, like that day when she says to you, why don't you come along with me? You must've thought about this in advance. Like what was going on there? Yeah. Now I'm curious too. <laughs> Cause I don't even know. I, you know, honestly, I was kind of having a rough time in life and I could just use, you know, some time away from, you know, what I had been doing, you know, with working and, and I was just like, I needed a break. And I really had nothing holding me back. And I was contemplating it. And I went over uh, to my uncle Tom's who was nearby. And I was asking him about what he thought. And he's like, yeah, because my parents were really against it. They wanted me to focus on my career. And, you know, what, what am I doing now? Going to go run off and ride motorbike everywhere. Mm-hmm. So irresponsible. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> a nightmare child. He's, yeah. he's going wild on us. You know, they thought they had you on the right track. But but before Tiffany asked you that, so you're saying a rough time. What, what, what do you mean a rough time? Can you talk about that? Oh, I had like, had gone through a divorce uh, maybe a year earlier and just lost my job. You know, it just kind of, kind of a rough spot in life. Right. Yeah. So um, before Tiffany pops this question or makes this, this remark to you, did you think about, like, what was your thoughts about Tiffany? Well, like we've known each other or knew of each other from, you know, the racetrack, obviously. And then, you, like she said, she kept on popping up in our, in our life. In fact, uh, we have a friend that her nickname is... Uh, poof. Poof. <laughs> she'll just like, all of a sudden, poof, and there's Tiffany. <laughs> I didn't but know about I, this at the time. Like, <laughs> but you phoned her up. You, you called her up. Yeah. Like, but I mean, something had to go through your mind to think I'm going to call Tiffany. Well, yeah. When we were at the racetrack and she told me she had a, she had a whole list of places that she wanted to go in. The Strawberry uh, Park Hot Springs was one of them. That's in Steamboat. So when I was up in Steamboat, I was like, well, I don't know where Tiff's at. Maybe she wants to go to the Hot Springs. So we'd kind of talked a little bit about, yeah, maybe I'll come, you know, you come to Colorado, I'll, I'll show you around. Is this strictly platonic at this point? You, you, you weren't, you weren't. You know. At this point it yeah. was. I mean, for David though. Oh, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was for me. <laughs> I was not looking for a relationship. Right. So you, you just, so you see Tiffany, you guys obviously get along well. You, you know, you're obviously yeah. both nice people and, and you could sort of sense that with each other. So when she pops this, this question, or like I said, make, makes this remark, you actually take it seriously and you're thinking you'll go. Yeah, why not? Yeah off you go. Did you have to buy a bike and everything for that? I did. I didn't have a street legal motorcycle at the time. So I ended up selling uh, my pickup and I was originally going to buy a Tuono and Aprilia for this trip. (laughs) But Tiffany thought that was a bad idea. So I ended up going with the Yamaha. I wanted a bike that had interchangeable like clutch levers and stuff that we could find parts for easily if need be. (laughs) Yeah, actually it's 
interesting. My bike and her bike will share a lot of the same parts. Yeah, we actually share brake pads between those bikes. They're like 15 years apart almost, but like if I'm easy on my brake pads and he's been really hard on his, I can be like, all right, take my rear brake pads. (laughs) It shows how savvy Yamaha is, doesn't it? For for making these parts, not so much for the end user, but for them building things, this uh, cross-platform stuff that they can do. It's it's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, And you guys actually sat down and talked about this before you left then. You, You sort of discussed the best ways to travel. Yeah, a little bit. It, there was a lot of it was very much just make it up as we go. Cause like I'd actually been single my entire life. So I had never traveled with another person. So I kind of had to figure out how to compromise and do that more. So when we were sitting down trying to figure out what bike he was going to come with me on, it was like, an Aprilia sounds really fun and exciting, but what happens if like your clutch goes out? If you're, you have even just minor problems of a lever or something, like you can't find Aprilia parts that easily. So we like sat down and like, okay, well you like the FZ1. That's really compatible with my FZ07. Like let's, let's stay consistent on our bikes and kind of planned it out a little bit from there. Got more camping equipment. Uh, well, another like air mattress and, such we actually shared a sleeping quilt the whole way he's a blanket hog it was terrible but (laughs) (laughs) but you know i'm sorry tiffany if i'm not getting this but there's there seems to be some spot where things have changed because he was just a friend and now you're going to share a tent with them yeah it i don't know it kind of just things started to click and she had a crush on me i probably had a crush on him (laughs) he's cute i don't know it's just i think for me it was like so like I said, I've, I had been single my whole life. I had, and when I traveled, I always traveled alone because it was one of those things for me. I'd ask people, I said, why? I always asked it as a joke because at this point I'd been turned down so many times for like, let's go do this trip and be like, ah, yeah, sure. Totally. And I was so used to that, that it just, to me, I'm like, okay, I'll just, I'll be alone my whole life because I have a lot of things I want to do and I'm not going to let other people not being willing to pull the trigger, hold me back. So when he actually said yes, and then he meant it, I was like, wow, that's like, that's commitment I've never seen from another person. And that's like a spontaneity. And it it was just, I mean, every single trip that I've proposed and I propose a lot and (laughs) quite, quite often he has always said yes to. And I think that was a big thing for me that all of a sudden it went from just being this platonic friend to like, maybe this person could be more than just a friend. Like maybe if, we're traveling together all the time and we were spending every day together. Like we'd talk every night and hang out around a campfire. It just kind of developed naturally into from friendship to a lot more than that. <laughs> How long ago was that? Uh, six years now, six almost years exactly. <laughs> I mean, you, you guys are really like from the outside looking in, you fit together like, like Lego blocks to me. You yeah. know, you both have <laughs> the same interests and, and likes. I mean, you know, from the outside, it, it looks like a perfect right. fit. Yeah. It, well, it's actually funny because it's always, he, there was also this concept of, he was kind of seen as like the crazy over the top person who's like, just, I don't know, riding, riding bikes in a really crazy way or fast and loose and out of control. And then I'm like this person who's very cautious and very careful. And even though I do a lot of stuff, I, I'm so used to like crashing or screwing up things that I'm, become pretty resourceful but like so I'm seen as this like clumsy careful person and he's seen as this like chaotic wild person so some of our friends at the racetrack are just like 
you and Tiffany, this is very confusing. <laughs> and, <laughs> oh, but, I see. Well, now I'm starting to get a feel for why David's yeah. parents doesn't want him to go on a bike ride. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, but then now it's like, I don't know, we just click so well that it was this weird opposites attract thing that ended up working out and balancing each other. What was that, David? Yeah, I, I was going to say that we're kind of like yin and yang. Mm. <laughs> She's very conservative. I'm wild. She doesn't drink. I like to party. <laughs> so it's a balance. Uh, it's, yeah. it's, a, it's a nice balance, yes. What do you guys do then? You, you're, you've got ready for this trip. Where do you go? What do you do? Um, we pulled out a map and was like, where do you want to go camping first? Yeah, well, so it started, it kind of started with, so we were touring Colorado. We had to stay there until the Pikes Peak Hill climb because I had never seen it. So we wanted to stick around for that race. Um so as soon as that was over, it was the end of June and, uh, I'm like, do you have a passport? Cause we could go to Alaska. And he's like, yeah, we, I have a passport. Let's go. And cause we only had, you know, there's a very narrow window. You can go to Alaska between like June and September would be pushing it. So we ended up deciding to go to Alaska first and then come back and finish well, off the we States. had to go to Laguna Seca for a world super bike race. Oh, that too. We also, <laughs> there was a lot of racing integrated into this. As it has racetrack people, it just, it's such an all consuming obsession that it was like, okay, MotoGP, okay, Pikes Peak Hill Climb, okay, the Laguna world super bike race and- um, Then Alaska. And, and we were corner working at that race because I always wanted to experience corner working. I'm still hoping to do that in Europe one day. Uh, his corner worker MotoGP race. Did you get paid for that? Yeah, a little bit. It was like, I think it was like $200 for the whole weekend, but they also provided lunch and free camping. Mm. It wasn't a lot of money, but when you're on small margins, it helps. And it was just really exciting and cool to like be that up close and personal with all the race bikes, get to watch like Roger Hayden crash and get to touch his motorcycle <laughs> and watch him storm off and <laughs> all that, that fun stuff. Right. But, uh, so we went over and did that. And then it was, then it was like mm, early July, I guess. And we were just, we had, we had to hit Alaska basically then. So we just beeline straight for Alaska from there. Uh, and cause we were going to ride up and then ride back down cause couldn't really afford the ferry. And then, finish weaving our way across the States before it got too cold. We kind of flirted with too cold for a bit there, but, <laughs> but we made it to Alaska and back. It took about um, two weeks up and two weeks down because we were taking our time and we go kind of slow on the sport bikes as far as like mileage per day. We met some people who had, who were doing the entirety of like, we met this group of people who went from Missouri all the way to the Arctic Circle and back in two weeks total. And then they were riding like 800 miles a day. And I'm like, well, I don't got the capacity for that. <laughs> yeah, you got to be a type of person, a type of rider for that, yeah. don't you? You know, that there, has there's to be definitely, There's definitely a type. Like some people love that kind of long, long distance touring where it's like this almost torture fest of just huge mileage. But on the sport bikes, it kind of forces us to slow down and do like, 200 mile, 300 mile days is kind of our norm. Right. You have to get off the bike and stretch before you're actually yeah. permanently in that position. Right. Like every hundred miles or, or two hours or whatever, whichever comes first is like, you have to get off and stretch and shake out your whole body and get gas, 
yeah. kick ass too because we which is great i mean because really that that's what bike riding should be you should be taking right. breaks and, and getting out and stretching and, yeah, and not only that in, enjoying what's around you yeah it forces you to really like slow down and see more things like when we're south of the border and travel in other less developed countries we're usually barely more at like 200 kilometers a day mm-hmm. so just because the roads can be so bad and it and it just it started to become fun to slow down because when I left, I was kind of on a mission. I was just like, I'm going to go here. I'm going to do all these things. And then when we started traveling together, it was, we kind of mutually agreed that like, all right, let's stop and see a little more. Cause he didn't really like doing the long torture type touring. And I was kind of into that cause I was really into endurance racing and stuff like that. So I was a bit torture fest and he was a bit, whoa, hang on. <laughs> and it kind of, we met in the middle and, slowed down quite a lot. And then I started realizing how much I liked riding more slowly and seeing more and camping in more places. And it, it like I said, it took us a whole month just to go to Alaska and back. And it was, and we could have probably taken another month if we had had the time just because there was so much to see and it was so beautiful. You, you said you worked that out. Did that come to a head at one point? Did you guys come to a um, point where you stop and say, this isn't working? Not, I'm, I'm pretty quick to compromise on stuff like that sometimes. So it never really became a too much of a point of tension. If we still do the long days when we have to, but it, he just kind of suggested let's slow down. And I'm like, all right, fine. I'll like, I kind of needed someone to balance me like that a little bit because I will just torture fest until I'm on my last, last leg. And sometimes I need someone to say, whoa, Tiff, it's okay. There you go, the yin and yang, you know, and then when David's (laughs) sitting back, pounding the booze back at night, you can say to him, hey, David, come on, that's enough. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) We can just balance each other in that way. Yeah. So during this time, you started writing for Motorcyclist Magazine. Yes. Why, why did you start writing? So this is this is actually kind of a funny story. Um, it it worked out a combination of my own interest and like some good connections that I had. But uh, when I first left on the trip, since I've always been a little bit awkward and accident prone, there was this whole. I one of my friends stopped talking to me. He's like, look you're probably going to die out there if <laughs> like with how you are. So update us on Facebook, like every couple days, just so we know you're still alive and okay. Cause otherwise we won't believe it. And I'm like, okay, that's fair. <laughs> so I started writing every couple days. I would write like a quick update of like, okay, I went here, did this, like just short little blog entry kind of things. And then the longer you're traveling alone, the more like crazy and isolated you get. And then all of a sudden those short little write-ups started to become longer write-ups and longer write-ups before they were like article length, like rambling. And and one of my friends who actually worked for Motorcyclist Magazine at the time, he was reading all my updates and just following along. And he was just like, I love the way you write. I'm going to pitch this to my editor and see if he wants to start publishing these in the magazine because they're always looking for content at motorcycle magazines. Like they just always need good stories. And um, he pitched it to the editor. The editor loved it. And they're like, we can start publishing this. And I'm like, great. Awesome. And um, so it kind of fell into it. And suddenly you've got a job. Yeah. Then all of a sudden I had a job at the time. I didn't, I didn't travel with a laptop or anything at times. I was typing every article on my cell phone. Like it was challenging and terrible. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, eventually I ended up getting a laptop because it was not working out too well, but it, it was really nice because it made it a little bit more sustainable. Like I wasn't getting paid much 
at all. It was very small amount per article, like maybe enough for a day or two of travel mm-hmm. at best. But but every little bit helped and I already had a good nest egg. So it was just something that sustained me a little bit longer as and and kind of made it easy to justify making the trip bigger and bigger. Cause like after we finished that 49 States, it became, ah, I still got some money and now I'm working for the magazine. We could go to Mexico. We could go to Panama. <laughs> I, I think we were camping on our 49th state. It was in Oklahoma. Yeah. Oklahoma ended up being the 49th state we hit with the weird weaving that we did. And he was just, we were standing around the campfire and he's like, so do you speak any Spanish? And I'm like, I, I know a whole lot of swear words. Like growing up in LA, you heard every swear word in Spanish, I promise. <laughs> and, um, and he's like, perfect, that'll be enough. And Let's then go to Mexico. all of a sudden we were going to Mexico. And David, is this, is this sort of coming from your, your original thoughts of going to Argentina? Is that what's running through your mind? Yeah, a little bit. I finally make that a reality. Because we were hoping to go all the way down to Tierra del Fuego at that time, but we got down to Panama and we had actually weaved quite a bit. When we first went into Mexico, I didn't even know there were actually states in Mexico. I thought it was just, in my mind, it was just this big conglomerate mass. And then I we got like our first peso and I was looking at it and it was like Estados Unidos of Mexico. And I'm like, wait, at the United States of Mexico, that there's states and then we saw there were 32 and then all of a sudden it's like we hit all the states of America let's hit all the states of Mexico uh so it ended up turning into a much bigger longer trip and by the time we got to Panama we were kind of at the end of the savings the magazine wasn't paying enough that we could have kept going so we're like okay let's turn around get a job and then finish this after we've saved up again Mm, that must have been a a, a, like a real sort of cold reality (laughs) there where we're going to have to go back and make some money. Yeah, that was really hard. That was like, there was all this, I'm not ready to turn around. Like I really didn't want to, I don't know how many nights I had just like full on breakdowns of like, I feel like I'm failing by not hopping down to South America right now. But then I had to remember like, this was just supposed to be a cross country trip. Like I didn't fail. (laughs) This actually (laughs) snowballed so large. I just wasn't prepared for how big it was going to get. Um, and honestly, it was probably a good thing because at that point we had been on the road for almost two full years. Uh, and at that point there was also this degree of where we had almost gotten into a routine where every day just kind of was like a grind and we weren't really appreciating it as much anymore. Like we didn't have enough money to do tourist things. So we weren't really enjoying the locations we were at. We were just kind of going through it which was still its own experience that had a lot of good things about it. But as far as like going to each new location and being like, I'm in Costa Rica, I want to zip line and do this whitewater raft tour or whatever. It was like, we were skipping all of those little things that made each place special because we couldn't afford it. And we had to find that balance of, okay, I want to travel, but I want to be able to afford to travel in such a way that I at least get to experience each place I'm going to in like an authentic way. That's not just living in a hostel until you hop on your bike and drive. Um, so it was actually kind of a good thing that we turned around because it let us reset and actually be ready for the next trip in a way that was like, I understand better what I need to travel in a way that's sustainable and stays fun instead of starting to become kind of like an exhaustive grind. Cause those big trips are actually really exhausting. Um, they're like, I wouldn't trade them for anything Don't get me wrong, but there are, there is a point at like so many months in where you start to miss having a stable home and a comfortable 
income where you don't have to worry. Like there is a point that it starts to just be like, I am mentally and physically exhausted. <laughs> and the simple things of picking up your camp every day and having to find right. a washroom, all of that sort of stuff is. Oh my God. Rolling up that tent every day started to become one of the most exhausting things in the entire world for like, it wasn't that hard of a challenge at all, obviously, but it just that like 10, 15 minutes of packing up camp was just such a mental toll of like, I don't want to keep going though. I want to be able to sleep in today. And did you (laughs) get to the point where you're, where you're seeing people in houses and you start to feel a little resentful almost? (laughs) Sometimes there is a little bit where like, like I'd have friends like, Oh, you're living the dream. You're living the dream. And I'm just like, and they're like, I could never do that. Like, I don't know how you can do it when I have to pay my mortgage and my car payment and whatever. And it's like, well, I don't have a house. I don't have a car. I don't have these things. That's why I do this. But at the same time, sometimes you kind of start to crave like the other side of it where it's like, I miss comfort and stability. Mm -hmm. And then I come back to comfort and stability. And that lasts for like two or three months. I'm like, let's go, let's go, let's go. But, (laughs) (laughs) but there is a point of traveling where I just like, I legitimately crave just having my own comfortable bed. That's not full of bugs in central America. (laughs) At this point, what are you picturing as the future? Are you thinking ride home and and do what? Uh, so my plan at the time was I was going to ride home, get a job in, in software again, which is what I ended up doing. And then I was going to save up money and do and fly over to Europe was what I really wanted to do Europe just for the MotoGP races and all of that. Uh, and that was kind of all I really had planned at that point. Um it didn't manifest into Russia and all of that until we started to kind of realize it was more possible. But then actually what happened instead uh, was, so we came back and we ended up, there was this whole challenge of, so he was from Colorado, I'm from California. So we're like, where are we going to live to save up money again for a little while? Cause that actually ended up being a really hard thing as partners of, he didn't want to live in a big city. I didn't, really know what I wanted at the time because I'd been in LA my whole life. So I'm like, I'm open to trying something new. Mm -hmm. So we ended up moving to rural Montana where somehow I found a software job, which when I actually started the job, it was like, I could have been designing software in 1995. It was so far back, but you working on on software for farming equipment or something. Is that, it it was supposed to be insurance software, but oh oh my God, it was literally, I could have designed a better website when I was like 10 and (laughs) making like video game forums on the internet. (laughs) Like it was so bad, (laughs) but um, so I got that job and it was surprisingly well paying and we showed up in winter. I had bought a truck so we could do winter in Montana with like the last, I had like $3,000 left. The truck cost $2,400 and I had to last like one week on $600 with our full everything. Oh, you're getting right to the wire. <laughs> yeah. It was like, and we were living out of a hotel cause we had just moved to this. It was called um, Kalispell, Montana, just outside Glacier National Park. And, um, And like, we were really, really cutting it close. I ended up negotiating a sign-on bonus just to like a relocation bonus just to get us by for a little while until I got my first paycheck because it was way too tight Mm -hmm. and uh, ended up surviving that well enough. But the mistake I had made is again, being from Los Angeles, I moved to Northern Montana for winter. And it turns out winter never ends in Northern (laughs) Montana. We got buried in 160 inches of snow or something throughout six months of never ending snow. And you learned that you actually have to change your clothes with the seasons. 
Oh my God, you couldn't even walk outside in anything less than like 15 layers, I swear to God. <laughs> I was used to like walking outside in barefoot in a pair of shorts. And then if it got cold, maybe I'd put on a pair of pants. I didn't even know I had to zip up my jacket to stay warm because I never had to do <laughs> that. He, he made fun of me for months, like zip up your jacket if you're cold. I'm like, oh, I guess that makes sense. Because <laughs> like, I'm used to jackets being a fashion item, not a real thing. <laughs> and uh, and we, we hit negative negative 17 Fahrenheit up there. So it was, and like blizzarding and it was so cold. I learned to drive in the snow. Oh, I learned, we st actually, I was going so stir crazy. We bought a little dirt bike and put studs in the tires so we could ride on the frozen lakes because oh, they were frozen fun. for six months. It that's was a lot of fun. That was the only really fun thing. Otherwise it was just snow and snow and snow. And I'm just like, this is too oppressive. I can't take it anymore. And then and I bought us two one way tickets to Thailand. <laughs> oh, and that's what I was say. How long did you suffer for before you I made it six months. Six, oh, that's six a months. a long time. That was it. it. And it was still, when we left for Thailand, it was, uh, what was it? Beginning of May or end of May. And it was... It, there was still 120 inch base on the ski mountain. He was working at a ski mountain when I was working in software. And like they had so much snow in May that I'm just like, I, I need to go somewhere tropical like right now. <laughs> like I can't do this ever again. <laughs> now, obviously, this, I think this is an interesting part of your story because you guys went with no bikes, obviously not intending no, to. Not this time, yeah. But you missed bikes being there. Can you, can you tell that story? <sighs> so much. Um so I really, we wanted to bring the bikes really badly, but because I'd only been saving for about six months, I didn't really have that much money saved up. So it was like not really feasible to ship them over there. It would have been well over a thousand dollars to get each bike. And that just wasn't realistic. So we had to just kind of go in and like, just do the backpacking thing. And like, we, we can probably rent a bike or a scooter or something when we get there. Which we did do one day. We rented a scooter and like toured around. We were uh, on this island and it was okay, but it's honestly, I was almost glad we didn't have the bike sometimes because traffic is a little bit terrifying in Asia. Like mm. in Latin America, it's one thing, but it's pretty crazy. There's just flow and no rules of the road. But in Asia, it's that plus quantity of people. So it's almost sometimes relieved to just be like, I'm going to hop on this bus and they can handle all of that. And mm. I don't have to. But then after like a month or so, we were there mostly for scuba diving because I had learned to scuba dive when we were on our trip down in Belize and fell in love with it. So that was kind of the motivation of we'll just dive and then we don't have to have our own bikes to bring to islands and stuff. It makes it easier. But yeah, eventually it started to be like everything was let's look up bus schedules. Let's see where the taxi, if we can find a taxi, let's see. Like it became, we were so enslaved by bus schedules and what other people other people's availability that it, it, you lose so much freedom when you don't have your motorcycle. Like I like backpacking's easy and comfortable, but it's not, it doesn't have that freedom of like, I can go right out into this crazy mountain road that no one will take me to and see this tiny little village that you can't get to any other way. And I can do that on a motorcycle, but if I don't have my own transportation, I just can't. And that started to kind of hit a little hard because Thailand's such a cool country. I wanted to see so much of it. And we were just a little bit limited in that way. How long were you planning to be there for? Um, it was pretty open-ended. I just got two one-way tickets and we had 
We had a 30-day visa is like the default for Americans when you go to Thailand and you can have it extended to 60 days. But when we got to the 30 days, we decided we'd just go try out another country. So we flew over to Indonesia and hopped around. But it was basically one of those, we're going to go until we're down to like our last four or $5,000 and then start applying for jobs and hopefully find something oh, when so we get you, back. So you'd quit your jobs. You guys both dumped your jobs before you left. Yeah. So you <laughs> yeah. only did six months. Wow. Yeah, that's why I didn't have that much money saved right. up. I think I had maybe $10,000 in the bank, which sounds like a lot, but when you're living off of nothing but your savings, it goes through fairly quick. Yeah, it was pretty good <laughs> savings for six months' work, for sure. Yeah. Like for, it worked for a lot out. of people, it'd be tough. Yeah. Tiffany is very frugal. Yeah. She's an excellent saver. I save really hard. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's that thing of I wanted, I, I constantly, especially with racing, since it became this thing of what do I want more that really delicious sounding expensive meal at the restaurant or do I want a new pair of tires? What would be more fun? What's going to bring me more joy? That cake will give me joy for three minutes. Those tires are going to give me joy for like half of a season. And like, so there's a lot of negotiation in my mind whenever it comes to spending money. Mm. And so I became pretty good at saving. Yeah. that's, (laughs) That's tough to do. It really is tough to do. To, to yeah. be able to, to yeah, because uh, it's so easy to say, oh, it's only twenty bucks, it's only fifty bucks, right? Whatever, but that all adds up. That's that's it where does. a million dollars comes from. Was a million single dollars? It's tough to get yep. your head around. <laughs> Absolutely. And uh, so yeah, that ended up working out really well. We made it. We ended up being there for about three months or so. We hopped around, uh, hopped around Thailand, then Indonesia, and we stayed in Bali for a bit. Then we went to this place, Komodo National Park. Then we hopped over to the Philippines and then Japan. And by Japan, we were about out of money, and it was about time to go home. So and start over and. Every time we do this, we end up within like an inch of our savings. So (laughs) it's always really stressful going back. But then at the same time, it's almost like you become a little bit more resilient because you're like, okay, I've successfully gotten to an inch of my savings and recovered without needing help like three, four times now. I can do it again. And like it it gives you this new confidence that you can always do that. (laughs) So the plan is to go back home save up some more and then go again. Yep. I, mean, I mean, are you guys travelers yep. at this point? Have you, have you decided that that's what sort of in your blood is to just travel? I think so for me, definitely. It's just, it's become, I mean, like there are times when I need a break, but then it's just like, I just feel so driven towards it. Like I just, I'll literally hop on my computer and the screensaver will show this beautiful place in the background. And I'm just like, Oh, I haven't been there. <laughs> now is this travel or is this motorcycle travel? Like, does it have to be on the bike? Cause, cause we're talking here about you going to, and on this trip and missing the motorcycles. Does travel have to have a motorcycle involved? Kind of, it doesn't have to like, it's so there's that special quality when it's got a motorcycle that just, you can't replicate without it. Mm. And while I, I do enjoy traveling just for the sake of traveling, like there is actually something kind of fun about learning public transit and figuring out that kind of stuff and experiencing it almost more like someone who lives there might experience it. But there's also just that freedom of having a bike and being able to go wherever you want to, and, and not even just going wherever you want, but the physical riding of the bike that's so satisfying, like the feeling of trail breaking into a turn on this beautiful mountain road and just like the adrenaline while you're watching these new sights you've never seen go by. Like it, it's, you can't match that any other way. Yeah. 
I, I love traveling in any capacity, but I just don't think anything quite compares. It's better on the back of a bike. It is. <laughs> it David, just is. Did you travel before? I have done some traveling before. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Not, not a lot of out of country, but. Did, did you get bitten by the travel bug through that? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I remember specifically one time as a, I think I was high school age and our family went on a cruise and. I was just so excited to like fly and just vacation. I was like, one day I'm just going to go on vacation after vacation after vacation, just never ending. <laughs> it's kind of like that, just with so, a lot more top ramen. <laughs> well, well, I think that the, the one big difference though is with vacation. Vacation is something you do very easily when when you're when you're traveling yeah. the way you guys are traveling. There's more work to it, isn't it? I mean, I can hear in the yeah. story. Absolutely, you're, you're, it's not quite as easy as a vacation. It's, it's not easy at all. Yeah, so much. There's so much of it that's like, like, well, actually we've had this even, we've had friends like come visit us while we're on our trip, even just to like join us for riding for like a week or so. And it it's immediately a different parallel where like we've learned to balance relaxation and travel so that we don't get burnt out. But when you're on vacation, it's like, I've got a week, I'm going to pound as much stuff into this week as I can. I want to go, 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 go all the time. And now for me, that's just exhausting. I was the same when I used to go on vacation for a short time. You're just trying to do as much as you can in this little time you have off. But for us now as travelers, it's like, you're not treating it like a tourist. You're like, ah, I don't really need to see this. It becomes a lifestyle. It is a lifestyle and it, there is a lot of work in it. There's a lot of like mental care that you have to do for yourself of just physical and mental care to just keep your body feeling strong and keep your health up because sometimes you start to, you eat so much like cheap, bad food that you have to start being more careful about that. Cause long-term it's like short-term. Yeah. We can eat top ramen and peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, but after months and months of that, like your health starts to suffer and you might get sick more often. So Mm -hmm. it's like, or if you do get sick on the road, you get a cold and now you're staying in this foreign country in a foreign hotel room and you're miserable and you can't get any of the creature comforts you're used to. Like we were in the Philippines and I got a, I just got like a basic, basic cold, but I learned that their government has banned anything like Sudafed or uh, Claritin or any kind of allergy medicine, anything like that to help with congestion because they're so worried about um, making methamphetamine out of Sudafed that they don't allow any kind of cold medicine at all in their country. So I'm just sitting there so miserable running a fever with the sniffles and I'm just like, I wish I was home right now. Like travel is not fun right now. The only thing that got me through that was very strong wasabi <laughs> to just wipe my sinuses. But so there's stuff like that too, that starts to become, you don't realize how nice it is to be at home and just kind of have that vacation mentality. Sometimes it's way more relaxing than travel. I still wouldn't trade it, but. <laughs> when was it you guys flew back from Japan then? Uh, that would have been, I think it was the end of July. And that was back in 2018, I think. Yeah. I'm not very good with dates. I think it was 2018. <laughs> yeah. We, so we started our trip in 2016 and it was 2016, 2017 was on the bike, then came back, saved 2018 would have been Asia. And then 2019 we were saving money again. And then 2020 was when we tried to leave on a bigger so, trip. So 2019 <laughs> you, you spent again, you got jobs. What did you end up doing? 
Uh, I got another software job that time in, uh, this time Boise, Idaho. We tried living there for a while and he got an engineering job doing um, paving for the roads and we saved up that way. Um, and then actually that one was actually kind of an interesting crossroads because we were, I was doing the software job that there's something about working at software jobs in small towns after having worked in like Los Angeles where you're on the cutting edge. It's really hard to go backwards and be like this person who's just like, let's go, let's go. We're learning all this stuff. Like you have this, I say like that dog eat dog ambition where you're just constantly competing with yourself and everyone else. Mm -hmm. And then you go to a small town and they're like, dial it back. And I'm just like, I, I don't want to like, this is so not mentally engaging. Like I need engagement. <laughs> I need to be excited about what I'm doing and I need to be learning. And uh, so I kind of started to lose it. I was just so exhausted by not being challenged at work that I ended up leaving that job and deciding to commit full time to being an author and writing books. And um, because that was something I could do on the road. And my thought was, if I can write books, then I can do that from anywhere. And then we don't have to constantly come back and do this awkward grind. Like we can kind of choose when we want to do this, like when we're tired and want to stop. So I started focusing full time on that. And I think I wrote like, I don't know, eight books that year. Like, How do you get into writing books? I, I guess like everything in my life kind of snowballs a lot when I just get like one little taste and I realize I like it. It just turns into <laughs> a lot <laughs> because it started out with just the articles for, for Motorcyclist Magazine and I was writing those and I was having fun with it. And aside from like, it was fun to have the engagement with other people, but at the same time, I just started realizing like I really enjoyed just writing stories and having been a nerd my whole life and loving video games. Like I had all of these fantastic fantasy fiction stories in my head that I has always wanted to put to paper. And now that I was starting to write articles, I'm like, it can't be that hard to do long form. So I started writing full-length stories. I took my entire, every article I wrote for Motorcyclist and I turned that into a full book, filled in like more of the emotional details that weren't really appropriate for a, for a short magazine article, but worked in full-length book form. And um, after I wrote that first book, it was just like the floodgates were open and all I wanted to do is write more, create more worlds and stories. So I actually do nonfiction and fiction now, everything from well, I also, so this is also actually kind of ties in, but, um, when I was in high school before, before I had even thought about writing a motorcycle, I used to be really, really into comic books and I would write and draw my own comic books for myself just for fun. Like I never shared them with anyone, but I just love doing it. Cause I always wanted to invent these worlds. So this was like a moment where I'm like, what if all of those dreams I had as a kid and in high school where I thought I was going to create stories and be an artist and all of this, like that could be my reality. Just like travel could become my reality. Maybe creating stories and creating art as a living could actually be a reality. And I don't just have to do the safe software development job. That's a good job. Um, I can do a job that I'm actually passionate about. And I ended up, I guess I was kind of good at it because it's been <laughs> working out pretty well. <laughs> well, you, you've got how many books? Six, seven books? Uh, a lot. Yeah, I've got seven books and then I've got some pen names with some other books. Like I do fiction too. I've got, I have one book right now. I just got an agent and it's in edits right now and it'll be submitted to publishers later this year. But uh, yeah, it's just something that I started writing a lot of. 
I don't understand how you get good at it, though. I mean, how do you develop the ability to write? Because obviously you're very good at it. Just doing it a lot. I don't know. I'm a very sarcastic person. I was never like the super pretty girl in school, so I had to be the funny one. (laughs) So so I wrote a lot and talked a lot and it just... I don't know. I, it just kind of translated. And I said, I just, I loved reading growing up. I loved comic books. And then it just, I was like, why couldn't I do that? I've got lots of stories. I'm creative. Yeah. And I just did it a lot. And I mean, I've improved a lot over the years too. When I go back and read my first book, I'm, it's barely recognizable to me now, <laughs> but, <laughs> but it's a just, yeah, like, like anything, you just, just like riding a motorcycle, you do it a lot and then you start to pick up nuances and get better and better at it. And before you know it, it's second nature. Uh, I guess, yeah, but you also have to have the passion mixed in. And, and I can yeah. hear that in your voice when you talk about right. writing. And be, because for some people, a lot of people, maybe most people, writing is very arduous. Right, yeah. And if you're not excited about it, even even Hollywood, like he he says himself that like he can barely write an email. It's just, he hates it. Yeah. And Hollywood, whereas, that's the, is this, is this a racing sorry. nickname? Is this yeah, David's racing nickname? Is that what it is? I, yeah. I forget that we have, almost everyone at the racetrack has funny nicknames. I don't even think about it. I literally call him Hollywood in front of his parents and I totally forget that his real name's David. <laughs> <laughs> I try and say David and it sounds weird to me. I'm like, I don't even know who that is. <laughs> oh, that's the names you guys use? Your nicknames back and forth when you're talking? Yeah. I mean, I'm just Tiff, but I always call him Hollywood. <laughs> yeah, I don't even think about it anymore. <laughs> well, I, I'm going to put a link in the in the show notes for the for your books. Sure. Because yep. you've, um, you've got the fiction, but you've also got motorcycle books about your yeah. story, which is well worth uh, people getting and, yeah, uh, and finding out about, but so it's, you say for 2019, and I think I interrupted you there, 2020, yep. that was going to be the big trip. Yeah. Oh God, I'm still bummed about that. Um, yeah, we had, it worked out in January of 2020. We gave up our apartment in Boise. We had a good savings. We went, uh, we went to the Russian embassy and we got our Russian visas. We actually got, uh, Americans at the time, at least probably not anymore, but Americans could get a three-year Russian visa uh, because of some treaty that had happened in like 2012. So we got a three-year Russian visa so we could go through Siberia. I don't know why, but something about Siberia had always attracted me since I was like a kid and I just wanted to go there really bad. So we were going to fly into Morocco. Well, let's back up. First, we had to book uh, tickets for our bikes from through Air Canada. Right. We were going to ride up to Vancouver. And yeah, we were going to ride up to bikes. Vancouver. And then Air Canada had the fly your bike program for, it was about 1200 bucks. They would fly your motorcycle anywhere in Europe, or they would also do Casablanca, Morocco, which is what we were going to do. Um, so we were going to fly into Casablanca, take the ferry to Spain, go to the MotoGP race in Jerez, and then just tour around until basically ran out of, I think we get 90 days out of every six months that as Americans were allowed to be in the EU. And then we were going to, after 90 days, go over to the Eastern Bloc and explore around there. And then we had our Russian visas. So we were going to go the Trans-Siberian Highway from uh, St. Petersburg to, I, I always mispronounce this, it's like Vladivostok, there's a lot of letters and I can never get it right. I think you got it though. I think that was it. Okay. That's how I understand it. It's a lot of Vostok. <laughs> I've read it so many times and I think I've repronounced it a different way every time <laughs> I read it. But uh, then from there, we were going to hop the ferry that goes to Korea, then Japan. And then from Japan, I didn't know where we were going to go yet. 
the hope was to find a way to get to South America and then go up from Tierra del Fuego back to the States, but it was going to just depend on where we were at that time. And then, yeah, we had those tickets in Air Canada booked for April 1st. So it was uh, April 1st of 2020. And I was just kept sitting there. It was like, I think it was like early March when they started doing all the lockdowns and they're just like, just two weeks. And I kept telling him like, don't worry, it's just two weeks. We'll have plenty of time. We can still go to Canada. Oh, the naivete of youth. <laughs> yeah, it's such a shame because that was yeah. just such an amazing thing. And and all the money you spent, the Russian visas had to be right. expensive, aren't they? Aren't they really oh, expensive? Oh, it was $1,000 for those visas. Oh. And now, and we have not been, they're still holding our $1,000. They said they'll totally issue those visas oh, really? <laughs> if we ever, they actually were going to hold on to our passports until they were able to issue the visas. And I'm like, no, no, no. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want to give my give you guys my passports well, forever. Well, never happened now, right? I mean, <laughs> right, the way things are now. Exactly. So I don't even know if that'll be possible, um, which I still hope it is. But for now, we're saving money, hoping that by like 2023, we'll have we'll have enough saved up again easily by 2023. And then maybe things will be better. But who knows? Mm. And uh, so what did you guys do? Yeah. Did you end up just staying home? We fortunately had we had a truck that the one we had bought when we moved to Montana Um and we had that dirt bike that we had bought when we moved to Montana that we studded up the tires on. Mm-hmm. Um, and we ended up taking that dirt bike and me personally, I've, my whole entire motorcycle career has been on road. Like it went from the canyons to the racetrack. And my only taste of off-road was the camping that we had done when we were traveling, um, on that first trip. So I was, I could kind of handle like a hard packed dirt road, but I was so anxious and nervous whenever it started to get like gravelly or sandy. Like I was just dirt kind of terrified me. So that year we decided that since we couldn't leave the States, we ended up using some of our savings and buying a second dirt bike. And we just decided we were going to tour the United States and ride dirt bikes around the States until I got comfortable with it. Well, let's back up a second. She had one goal that she wanted to achieve and that was to find a dinosaur. Oh, (laughs) a dinosaur on a dirt bike. Explain that. that. (laughs) Okay. So, So when we had gone to Montana, almost everyone we met in Montana had like these stories of finding dinosaur bones when they were out like hiking or whatever, because it turns out there's, it's like a hotbed of fossils up in Montana. It's this formation that it's where they found um, T-Rex skulls and they found Stegosaurus and they found all these, and Triceratops and all these big dinosaurs. And whenever people kept telling us that when we were living in Montana, they're like, oh yeah, I was just hiking along this river and I found a T-Rex tooth. And I'm like, wow, that's incredible. And like every second grader in America who learned about dinosaurs, I thought for a long time that I wanted to be an archaeologist or paleontologist because I just was like, yeah, I'm going to go find dinosaurs like Jurassic Park. It's going to be so cool. So after hearing that for the whole time we lived in Montana, when we got stuck in the United States, I'm like, the only way I'm going to agree to just staying in the United States is if we find a dinosaur. (laughs) (laughs) So you're using motorcycles to hunt for dinosaur bones. I like this. This is another another theme. I like this. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) There's always got to be some overarching goal. Yeah, it's great. I, I, I actually struggled with a little bit when we went to Asia was we didn't have like a goal. 
we just went there like, let's jump around Asia, scuba dive anywhere we feel like going, like explore a little bit, whatever. But we didn't have any kind of like, let's go to Alaska, let's go to Panama, let's go to, like we didn't have a concrete a theme goal going forward. Yeah. yeah. And without that, you just feel kind of aimless. Like mm. it starts to feel less like motorcycle travel and more like almost legitimate homelessness that starts to be like, ah, oh, this is kind of depressing. That, that's a good tip for, for those who are interested in taking a trip for sure. Yeah. That, that goal for me at least is key because I'm very goal oriented. So our goal on the dirt bike trip, aside from learning was let's go find a dinosaur. And, uh, we went to Montana where we knew that like our, we had friends who were like, yeah, there's dinosaurs all over or whatever. And we ended up going to a local museum and they did this like come along with the museum for a day and the paleontologists will take you on a real life dig and show you like how we find dinosaurs. So we went there and we did that. It was a lot of fun. And they told us how to identify dinosaurs. Like, cause those bones will just look like rocks if you don't know what you're looking at. Mm. So I could have walked right next to a bone and not even known it when I was there the first time. And uh, then we ended up going back to his hometown in Northern Montana, this place called Haver. Um, and there's a little OHV park right outside of it. And we're like, okay, this is right on. It's called the Judith River Formation, which is where a lot of big aquatic dinosaurs were found. And we went over, it's all these crazy steep badlands that are like crumbly dirt, which at the time I was terrified to ride, but I've learned since how to do downhill and stuff on a dirt bike when it's steep and terrifying. And um, we went down into these, these badlands and we were like just searching around in the dirt and I ended up finding a dinosaur tooth. And no way. I was, it wow. was crazy. That's what's so crazy in Montana is so they don't do a lot of recreating up there. There's not like, it's a very, unlike being in the big city where people have a lot of disposable income when you're in these rural places, they don't really. So it's just, they farm and they hang out at the local pub and like, that's kind of life there. So we went to this OHV park and it was a Saturday, a beautiful day in summer, like 80 degrees out. Wonderful. Not a soul was there all Saturday <laughs> because they just don't really do that stuff. But because of that stuff, like dinosaur bones, like we later went to this boat launch at this popular lake right outside town. And like, you could just walk along the shore of the lake and there were little pieces of bones everywhere, bones everywhere. just everywhere. Oh, like it was right. so prevalent that I'm like, wow, this is so easy. It's almost comical. Like, <laughs> And you're allowed to pick them up. That's fine. You're no, you can't take them with you. Yeah. Um, we actually ended up finding when we were at that lake, literally right by a popular T Tiffany boat stepped launch. over one. Yeah. We almost, almost tripped over it. There was this huge, it looked like a leg bone or something. And like just a little bit was peeking out out of the sand and then just started digging it to see how big it was. And it ended up being, if you find three bones or more, the government will be willing to look at it supposedly, or they'll be interested in like digging it up. Cause otherwise there's so many little pieces of bones there. It's not worth following the lead unless you have something big and exciting. Oh wow! So at this boat launch, we ended up finding this huge bone and then like I was digging a little more and then there was like another bone connected to it and another bone. And I'm like, Oh my kept God, I'm getting bigger. Just bigger, kept getting bigger. More more <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the bone was like the size of my entire leg. And I'm like, wow, this is, this is exciting. But like I say, you can't take it with you because there's a lot of laws about protecting fossils and it was on public land. So we ended up calling up a local paleontologist and he got us in contact with the Bureau of Reclamation. And then we got in contact with them and, um, as of right now, it's, we were trying to get it dug up professionally because I really wanted to know what kind of dinosaur it was, but 
as of right now, they just said, we know where it is and we currently have no room in our museums and no plan to excavate it. So I don't know what's going to happen with oh. that bone, but we did find one. <laughs> so this could be a unique, unique dinosaur. I mean, you might get to name this could thing. Be. That's what I'm hoping. Yeah. I want to know so bad. <laughs> but, but yeah, it was like this weird thing that I had no idea was going to actually be really easy to do. <laughs> I was like, it was this far-fetched, like psychotic goal. And I'm like, yeah, we're going to find a dinosaur. And then I'm like, whoa, wait, wait, there's a bunch of them here. <laughs> yeah, literally like, like in my like, like, hometown. Yeah, right. right outside his hometown. It was so funny. Tiffany, with, with all this success you've had kind of in life. I mean, you know, you, you've learned to work through things. You've, you've worked through adversity. You've set goals and accomplish your goals and you, you really stick at things and you become this writer and you have all these books out that you, you're writing and that seems to just be yeah. taking off for you. Yeah, Did, That must change well. who you are or who you, who you are now yeah. from when, before you started that first job. Yeah, I mean, in a lot of ways it does. In other ways, I'm like, God, I need to work harder. I'm not there yet. <laughs> but but in other ways- You're a bit ways, of a realist, are you? I mean, you, yeah. you sort of look at yourself and say, well, that's not that great already. Right, right, exactly. There's almost like this weird disconnect where it's like, when I used to, when I lived in LA and I'd never traveled and whatever, I looked at all these other travelers, like they have something special that I don't. They can go on these trips and they- I don't know. There's just something that they, I just assume they have more money than me or they're smarter than me or they're more skilled than me. And then I started, then when I started doing it, I'm like, you know, this isn't that hard actually. Like I can do this. And now like when I look back, sometimes I'll talk to people and I'll be like talking about some of the things I've done and they'll be like, wow, that's incredible. And I'm like, I don't know if I did it, it's not that great. <laughs> like yeah, it can't be that hard. You're one of those people that you, you thought, you know, you could never <laughs> attain before and, and, yeah. and here you are. Yeah, it's weird to kind of look back on it. I mean, it's it's changed a lot as far as, like I said, like even just the concept of coming back at the end of my savings and then finding a job and making it work. Now I actually have confidence that that's doable. So it's not as daunting and scary, but they're all like things that just kind of came of you just do them. Like I wasn't really particularly good at anything, but I'm like, I'll just try it and see what happens. And then all of a sudden I made it through and I made it through enough times that I'm just like, okay, maybe I am kind of going to become good at this after doing it so much. Mm -hmm. And I think that's kind of just the key is just like, I'm honestly not anything special. Like I'm not very strong or definitely not coordinated, but I just went out and did it. And like, I honestly think anyone could really go out and just do that to whatever works for them personally. And if they just want to keep at it, like you'll learn to do it. Like you're, you'll adapt to things and figure it out. It's just, it seems really daunting at first, but it's not as bad as it looks or as scary as you think it is <laughs> kind of thing <laughs> for me, at least. <laughs> Where does the adventure go from here? Um, well, that's a hard question. Um, the hope is still that next year, once we're saved up, that we'll be able to either, depending on how the world is as far as borders and politically and what have you, I really, really want to ride Japan. So maybe we'll go to Asia or maybe we'll go to Europe if that's more friendly. It just depends kind of on, on how COVID is because I know Asia is still a little rough with COVID as far as some borders. Um, I'd still really like to go to South America. So it kind of just, it's going to, Depend a little bit on the state of the world come 2023. <laughs> Maybe Newfoundland. I would really like to do Newfoundland. I'd like to do all of the provinces of Canada, but I'm really itching to go to a new continent now because we've explored North America very extensively, but 
but I'm really itching to go to another one. It just depends on politically, but there's definitely something in store for next year. I'm just probably won't actually know until like two months before we leave. <laughs> Tiffany, just remember Canada gets winter where that's snow and everything, yeah. right? <laughs> keep that in mind. I'll have to remember that. <laughs> That'll be like two, I'll just book away two months only for Canada yeah, right. and remember <laughs> to get out as fast as possible. Because <laughs> yeah. even when we did Alaska, it was, it was mid-August and the leaves were changing and I'm like, oh, <laughs> we <Yeah>. need to go. <laughs> yeah. Tiffany, David, great to sit down and talk with you. Thank you very much. Yeah, this is a lot of fun. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate it. (laughs) It was great talking to you. I was speaking with Tiffany Burkett and David Hayward from their temporary home while they get ready to head off on another adventure. We've got links in there for Tiffany's books as well as some photographs and things. Drop our website and look at the show notes for this episode at adventureriderradio.com. Yeah, I just want to remind you that this episode has been brought to you by Green Chili Adventure Gear, greenchiliadv.com, Motobreeze Chain Oiler at motobreeze.com, and Best Rest Products at cyclepump.com. And we'd really appreciate it if anytime you're dealing with these companies, anytime, email or otherwise, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio and we sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. Special thanks to our producer Elizabeth Martin and you the listener thank you very much for being a part of this by listening to the show. If you're not doing it already let me let me just point this out again. This show is built on a model of advertising and listener support we have a lot of listeners. There are thousands of people that listen to this every single day and only a small very very small fraction actually support the show. We would love it if you just consider go to adventureriderradio.com, click on support, and uh, consider supporting the show. We have another show that we put out every month called Adventure Rider Radio Raw. Uh, it's a roundtable talk. If, if you're not familiar with it, you'll find it everywhere you find uh, podcasts as well. All of this stuff is at our website, adventureriderradio.com, as well as every episode we do, just like this one. We have show notes in there. We put in photographs and, and notes and links and things like that to do with the episode. So drop on the website. Oh, and the other thing you could do is, is share it with your friends. Share it on social media. Share it with your friends. Anybody that you think may be interested in the show. It's just great if you can do that. Anyway, time to get out there and ride your bike if you can. My name is Jim Martin. Thank you very much for listening. I'll talk to you next week. My name's Lyndon Poskett, and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. (laughs) 